Hello, and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9 a.m. or for our more traditional service at 11 a.m. We also stream full services live on our Facebook page. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So we've had this mini two-week interlude between the conclusion of our summer worship series on the Articles of Religion, our doctrinal beliefs in the United Methodist denomination, and we will start our new fall series next week on spiritual gifts. But we had two weeks in order to carry and connect through there, and so I revisited the first mini-sermon series I ever preached, oh, so long ago, called Snarky Jesus, and this is what we have. So last week we discussed about how Jesus is using the gift of snark, right? Snark is often critical. Uh, Sometimes there's a dash of crankiness in there, and you see that a little bit today, and it's also a little cutting today. So you have cutting, critical, and cranky all wrapped up in one Jesus story. And why is Jesus feeling this way? Well, he's feeling this way because once again, he is having a contact that is not warm and fuzzy with those who are there to challenge him. And they're not there to challenge him to be his best messianic self. They're there to challenge him because they don't believe in him and what he is doing. And so let's kind of set the scene a little bit. It says, according to our scripture, that Jesus was there in Jerusalem at the temple complex for a religious observance. It was a remembrance of the dedication of the temple after it had been rebuilt and restored. And so this is a momentous occasion. And Jesus is there to worship, there to attend to his religiosity and thus to his spirituality. And yet as he is there in the portico, and in order to kind of paint that picture a little more, there is the temple, temple proper, which has the Holy of Holies in it, and then it has an outer courtyard where offerings are made, and then there's an extended courtyard where women are allowed to go because you have to have separation. And then outside of the walls of the temple is a grand courtyard, and a lot of things are happening in that grand courtyard. There are people who are praying, there are people who are playing music, there are tables with money changers, or there will be up until Holy Week, and there's a lot of things happening outside. There's a lot of busyness there. All around the grand courtyard is a covered walkway. Now, the front side of that, where there's the gate into the temple complex, that part is called the portico. A portico is covered and it has columns and it's kind of a gateway to a doorway. Now, when you start going around the other sides, that's called a colonnade because it's not a portal into the area, but it's just a covered walkway that you can go around. My last church in Norfolk had a colonnade. The building was shaped like a giant U. There was a a garden and a courtyard in the middle. And if you wanted to go from one end of the building to the other, instead of having to retrace your steps all around the U, there was a covered walkway that had columns in it called a colonnade. And that was the quickest way to go through there. But Jesus is entering into the portico. So when I was a student at the College of William and Mary, there is a very well-known portico on the back side of the Wren building, and it's a covered entrance so that you can then enter into the building proper. And Jesus is here. He's at a gateway, 
right? He's at an entrance place. And here he is, and some others have come to confront him right here. It's like he can't even get in the door, and they're already up in his face. And what is their problem? They want him to be very plain, very clear, very honest. Are you the Messiah or not? Yes or no? Tell us if you are. And Jesus who has spent his entire earthly ministry revealing to the world that he is the Messiah, is a little tired of hearing this. A little tired of that. Especially from these people who should know better, right? Some of these people are the very people who have been waiting and praying for the Messiah to come. The problem is the disparity between what they thought they were getting and what they got in Jesus. They thought that they were going to get a military hero, the likes of King David. And of course, this many years out from the life and the kingship of David, people have kind of romanticized David a little bit. So they're looking for a military, mighty leader, less all the female, wife, concubine, women problems that David had. And they're looking for this person to come in and expel the foreign powers. At this point in the life of the people of God, they are no longer independent. They have been vassals for a very long time. And at this point, the overlord, the foreign overlord, is the Roman Empire. And in case they ever could forget, all they have to do is look across the holy city of Jerusalem to see the governor's palace where Pontius Pilate resides. It is very clear that they have a new lord in town, and they're not happy about the Roman Empire being there for a multitude of reasons, and they would like for somebody to get rid of them. And they were hoping that the Messiah would do that. And so that's what they thought they were getting. Instead, they got Jesus, who doesn't seem to be very concerned with kicking Pontius Pilate and Rome out of Jerusalem, much less out of the Promised Land. He doesn't seem to be calling together the holy army of Israel and trying to start a war. In fact, he seems much more interested in being peaceful and a pacifist. He seems more interested in doing the kinds of things that they don't understand, like hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, who I always like that we have to separate those two, as if tax collector was its very own level of sinner. And then you have Jesus who's healing people, People who are broken in body, people who are disturbed in their mind, people whose spirits are torn asunder because they wonder if they can be known and loved and forgiven. And Jesus tends to these people day in and day out. He preaches and he teaches about love and forgiveness and God's willingness to invite others to the banquet table. And this upsets the status quo. They would rather believe that they are the promised people and everybody else is lesser than them. The people who are confronting Jesus today are more concerned with what Jesus will do for them than what Jesus has been doing for anyone else. And so Jesus is going to give the very same answer that he gives to John the Baptist's disciples when they come to see Jesus. John the Baptist was in prison. He was starting to have second thoughts about his life. He wanted some assurance. He sent his disciples to Jesus and they carried the message, are you the Messiah or are we waiting on somebody else? And Jesus said to those disciples, go back and tell John what you see, that the, the blind have their sight restored, the prisoners go free, the sick are healed. Go and tell them what you see and know that I am the Messiah. So Jesus has been doing all of these same things and yet these people don't understand. And so they have come to confront him and they just want him to say definitively, yes, or no. 
Jesus is a little tired of this at this point in his life, and so he enters into this little phase that we call snarky. And so he says to them, you should see what I am doing and know who I am, right? Not just anybody walks up and does the kinds of things that Jesus does, feeding thousands of people at one time, multiplying food. Uh, Not just anybody walks up and turns water into wine. Not just anybody walks up and commands spirits to vacate people that are being tormented. Not just anybody can come and heal those who are broken in their body and restore sight to the blind. Not just anybody can do that, but Jesus does it day in and day out, time and time again. You would think that someone would go, wow, he's either really holy or he's got God's blessing to do these things. And so Jesus says, you have seen what I have done. However, I understand why you don't believe in me because you are not my sheep. My sheep know my voice and I acknowledge them, I claim them and they follow me and you are not my sheep. But he could have stopped there. But Jesus wants to kind of drive this point home. Jesus has his sheep because this is the will of God the Father. God the Son has been given these sheep. He is the good shepherd that is to lead his sheep. Hence, we have this described here in our stained glass window on this side of the sanctuary. Jesus depicted as the good shepherd. He calls to his sheep. Those who are in his flock hear him, know him, and seek him to follow him. Now he says, you are not my sheep. That's, that's the way it is. But God has given these sheep to me and no one, no one will snatch them from my hand. Not you, not death, no one. They are mine because I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And so Jesus, if we read the subtext, is telling them that he is God incarnate. And at that moment, that's when he says, the Father and I are one. And that sends them over the cliff. They are very upset at that point. Can you imagine? You're in the temple version of a narthex. And they decide to pick up stones and stone Jesus. You think they would be like, I'm sorry, can you step out to the parking lot so that we can talk? No, instead they pick up the stones. And Jesus, who's already kind of ventured into that promised land of snark, responds to them, I have shown you many good works. For which one of these are you going to stone me today? You're going to stone me because I fed people? You're going to stone me because I forgave people their sins? You're going to stone me because I have healed people who are sick and broken? Why do you want to stone me today? Pick one. And so they, knowingly, respond, oh, no, 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 we're not going to stone you for those things, right? As if those things have all been fine. We're not going to stone you for those. We're going to stone you for blasphemy because you are claiming to be God, and that is offensive to us. We're going to stone you for this. And Jesus says, I am doing the work of God. You don't have to believe in me. I am doing the works of my Father, he says in verse 37. Then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Because we are one. But instead, they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that God incarnate is in their presence. And Jesus is a little tired of having to constantly have this conversation. Notice nobody ever walks up to Jesus and says, I really appreciate all the selfless things that you are doing. How can I help you? What would be beneficial for me to 
fund your ministry or what might help you to be able to do this longer, further, farther? What would be the way that I can support the good things that you are doing? No one ever walks up to Jesus and does that. They walk up to him and they're like, tell me what I want to hear or I'm going to stone you. You'd be a little sassy too. And so today in this scripture, Jesus has called the question, what am I doing that is so offensive to you? What am I doing? Now, he's telling them in a biblical way, a little saying that some of us have heard, stay in your lane. You ever heard that? You probably heard it when someone was teaching you to drive, and God bless all those people that teach you to drive, right? Because that is a panic attack waiting to happen when you're in a car with a new driver. Panic attack waiting to happen when you are the new driver. Forget having to sit there and not have the brake control. And so when you hear those words, right, stay in your lane, it means pay attention to the path that you are on and do not veer. Don't be distracted. Don't be concerned with what's going on in that car two lanes over. Pay attention to where you are. Now, in our culture in the United States and in our lessons that we have learned about driving, we have found out that people aren't very good at staying in their lane. And so we have installed rumble strips on the side of the road to help you when you inadvertently do something that keeps you from paying attention to your lane, right? And if you've ever been on 64, you know that on both sides of that highway, there are those little strips. So that if you're driving and you're not paying careful attention and you kind of veer to the left, all of a sudden it's like in the car. And everyone's like, what are you doing? Pay attention to the road. And generally you're like, I am trying to pay attention to the road, but I got four people trying to tell me how to drive and talking in the car. And you know, it'd be a lot easier if everybody just took to praying. But instead, we have installed things in our lives to help keep us on track, stay in our lane. And that's what Jesus is telling them. You don't have to believe me. You don't have to like me. You don't have to approve of what I'm doing, but I'm not hurting you. I'm not hurting you. I'm helping these people. And you should leave me alone. It's your decision whether or not you believe in me. That is your right. That is your gift that God gives you the opportunity to decide whether or not you will believe, hence faith. However, do not try to hurt me or those people that are a part of my flock because I am serving them. Stay in your lane. And if you go back to the beginning of the gospel account of John, there John the Baptist is very clear about setting up this paradigm, right? He says, I am here, and he offers this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins because he, in the tradition of the prophet Isaiah, is there to make straight the paths of the Lord. Make them straight. It's a lot easier to stay in your lane when they're straight. Right? And if you've ever driven in other places, we're actually very fortunate in Virginia. If you've ever driven in other places, driving and trying to stay in your lane is a nightmare. Right? When I was going to seminary in that wilderness wandering I call New Jersey, they have very special roads in New Jersey. You have to stay in your lane unless there's a pothole that will engulf the entire front axle of your car, for one. And two, they have invented things up there that I had never seen in any other state before. So if you've ever been to New Jersey and you've been fortunate to drive, you know, the Jersey Turnpike, then you'll know that there are multiple lanes of shimmering highway, generally four, sometimes more. And so when you're getting onto the highway, a lot of people go, I don't want to be in the far right lane. I would rather be over there three lanes over in the fourth lane, right? And so what they do is they initiate and engage what is called the Jersey slide. You turn on your turn signal 
and then you cut across three rows until you're in the row that you want. And then you turn your turn signal off, and you have arrived. However, if you've ever been somewhere and witnessed someone initiate the Jersey slide, you know that it's generally accompanied by a lot of screeching brakes, gesticulation through the windows, and the honking and leaning one of horns. Because a lot of times, that's about somebody trying to do what they want and, and getting into your lane. And in New Jersey, they really don't want you in their lane. They got a lane, and they're in it, and you should not have slid into their lane, unless they're sliding into your lane, and that's different. So here's the problem, right? Sometimes other states have realized that people are not good at staying in their lane. So for instance, if you're around the Philadelphia area, especially if you're on the Blue Route, they have installed cement jersey barriers that run on both sides. They don't have rumble strips. They have giant cement bricks. Forget letting you know. You'll just ping like a pinball. And so you spend your whole time very concerned, like this in your car, that you're going to hit cement and die. And so you focus on staying in your lane. However, Jesus didn't have cement barriers and Jesus didn't have rumble strips. His snark was his rumble strips. That's about as close as you got for Jesus. And so when they come and they're trying to prevent Jesus from doing what he is doing, he finally gets snotty with them and says, I'm doing good things. You want to stone me for doing good things? Well, no. That sounds really bad when you put it that way. No. We're going to stone you because you're claiming to be God. And so you would think that if you're going to get into a verbal banter at this point in the life of Jesus with Jesus, that you would be prepared for Jesus to pull out some scripture. And so he does. He pulls out one of the Psalms. And in that Psalm, God takes God's seat at the divine council and says to all the other gods, you are gods and you are doing a bad job. I'm paraphrasing here. But basically, Jesus is citing this text and saying God has declared that there are other gods. And at this point in the life of Israel, they are interpreting to that as people who were put in power by God who are abusing their power and their authority. And so Jesus says, it's in the scriptures and the scriptures can't be annulled. So why are you so offended that I am saying I am God's son? It's in the Bible. Which, of course, opponents really love it when you cite scripture, right? They love that. And so Jesus dies. And Jesus it ends the argument by saying, this is not your problem. Stay in your lane. And then they want to arrest him. Okay, they're done trying to kill him in the portico. And so now they decide they're going to try to arrest him. Well, they can't because Jesus is not going to be bothered with that today. I'm sorry, not today. I'm a little busy trying to do all the things that you're upset about because you don't like the people I'm doing them for. You don't like the people that I am healing. You don't like the people that I am spending my time with. You don't like the people who are being blessed by my words and my teaching. Instead, you want me to do what you want me to do. But I am not here to do that. Now, I talked to you last week about how Jesus being a little snarky is part of the rich prophetic tradition of the Old Testament. Well, Jesus being snarky today, recognizing that he is God incarnate, is actually also very Old Testament. It's very God the Father in the Old Testament. I mentioned to you how Moses got really frustrated one day, you know, probably the umpteenth time after some Israelite was like, you know, it was kind of better in Egypt, you know, where were we were in slaves and didn't even have straw to make bricks, but we had cucumbers. And so one day Moses had had enough and he said, your people, God, your people that you gave to me, these are your people. I didn't birth them. They are your people. And by the way, they're not great people. 
So God, you know, fixed the little things there. However, there was another day where Moses was talking to God, and God had kind of had enough. And God was like, I'm sick of all the complaints. I am sick of it. I have done everything. When was the last time somebody did 10 plagues for you? When was the last time? Be grateful. You're here. You're not making bricks with no straw. You're not under the thumb of Pharaoh. You're not in Egypt in this little ghettoized area called Goshen. You are headed toward your own promised land where you can be independent until you mess up. That's very biblical. And then you complain every step of the way. The water's too bitter. We don't have fresh produce. We used to have meat. Why are we out here? My feet hurt. I mean, who knows what they're complaining about now? And God has had enough. And so God says, all right, Moses, I'm done. I'm done, and we're going to wipe them out, and I'm going to start again with you. We're going to try again with you. And Moses is like, um, I would like for us to discuss this. Because there was a time before Moses where God did get rid of everybody and start again. We call that Noah. And how did that go? How did Noah feel about that? Well, let's put it this way. Noah gets out of the ark with his family that he's been on the ark with for a long time. And then he plants a vineyard, makes wine, gets drunk, and passes out naked. That's how Noah felt about starting again. And so Moses is like, let's not do that. Um, let's talk about it. Let me give you some reasons why that might not be a good thing. So Moses is going to become the PR agent for God, which is before they even invented PR. And Moses is going to say, do you know what the Egyptians will say? Do you know that you are a sociopathic, psychotic deity who went through all of this trouble to bring these people out of Egypt only to bring them out into the wilderness and kill them all? That is not good for your image. We should revisit this. Never mind the fact that, like, do you want to be responsible for all of humankind coming from you? I mean, that's, that's a lot to lay out there. And so Moses is like, let's not do that, okay? And God's like, fine, fine, we won't do that. I won't destroy them all, but I am going to send a little plague, and we're just going to weed out some of the bad ones. I'm just going to wither it down a little bit. It'll be fine. And they do. And so there is this tradition of God just hitting God's breaking point. Because I don't know if you know people, but people can push you to a breaking point. And you can do that. Do it with half a million people all at once who want cucumbers. Right? Do it all at once. It's a hard thing. And so sometimes I don't think that we can blame God Almighty, especially not God Almighty in human incarnation as Jesus, who's finally like, enough! But oh, by the way, there's a wonderful snarky Jesus text that happens when he's 12. You know, when all kids get snarky. When he's about 12, there is the story that says that Jesus was in the temple. He was at Jerusalem, and he had gone there with his parents and his family. And they had gone there traveling with a lot of people, because you generally do that. And they got outside of the city, and they started to get on the way, and they realized they didn't have Jesus. Now, they were traveling with a lot of people, and I'm sure all the kids were kind of hanging around all together, but then they realized that Jesus wasn't with them. And so they had to journey back. I mean, we're talking like a day and a half journey back to even find him. They finally get to the temple, because is that where you think your preteen would be? And so they get to the temple, and Jesus is there, and they're like, where, what, we have been missing you. Where have you been? Can you just imagine the rant Mary was on? And she was like, what? and Jesus was like, where else would I be? It's my father's house, like, duh. 
I'm here. <laughs> I'm kind of disappointed, Mom, that it took you this long to find me here. <laughs> no, who knows? But it's already there, right? There's a little bit of snark in there. There's a little bit of snark because it's kind of calling out the ludicrous things that we are saying and doing. And Jesus, at this point, and probably at this point now in our lives, is asking us to stay in our lane. Now, that's hard because some of us who shall remain nameless but yet robed are type A and perfectionist driven. And so you kind of want to have a little more control over things, right? It's kind of, you know, makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. And so you want to try to have that control. But sometimes, because Jesus says stay in your lane, you have to relinquish some of that and stay in your lane and trust that the people that are driving over here under the auspices of Jesus are not going to come crashing into your lane and you're not going to go over and crash into their lane. You're going to trust, not that Jesus takes the wheel, but you are going to trust that we are all going to do what we are meant to do. You have to have trust in each other. You can't just trust God. You've got to trust the people that God has sent. You've got to trust each other. And so earlier this week, I got a text message from my colleague, the pastor over here at Tabor Presbyterian, in a little catty corner across the street from us. And one of the local schools had reached out to her and had said that they have 15 families that desperately need clothing for their children for the first day of school. Now, I don't know what kind of person you were getting ready for the first day of school, but I was kind of focused on that first day outfit. And even though my mother would take me and we would go shopping for the outfit, and even though I had the outfit, you know, you get ready to go to bed, but at midnight, you're not really sure that the outfit's right. So you get up and you try it on and you're like, it's not right. And so you spend two hours trying to figure out how to make that work. And guess what? It wasn't any more right at 2 a.m. than it was at midnight. And my parents were generally like, just go to bed. For the love of God, go to bed. And I was like, if I don't fix this now, it's not going to be right at 7 a.m. We have to fix it now. And so I had a lot of inner and outer anxiety about that because you were setting the tone for the year. You were telling people who you were. The summer has passed, and I have shown up, and I am different now. And look at this, right? It was a whole different thing. And so there was a lot of pressure on that first day outfit. Well, that resonated with me when I'm reading about kids that don't have clothes. And I'm talking about not kids that don't have the style they want. I'm talking about kids that probably don't have clothes that either fit or are even seasonally appropriate. And they need clothes. And so I was like, what are we doing? And she said to me, well, we can offer half the money for the gift cards. They're going to buy 15 different gift cards for the families. We have half. Can you do the other half? Absolutely. Yeah. How do you want to do it? How do you want us to get the money to you? How do you want us to have it happen? So we worked out that. We worked out all of the nuances of how we were going to do this appropriately in accordance to financial policy. And then I said, okay, so who's going to, how, how are we going to get the gift cards? She said, well, I'm going in to Charlottesville tomorrow anyway. I will go pick them up. Okay. And then part of me is like, well, what store are you going to go to? And what denominations are you going to get them into? Are we going to like put any like limits on this? Like if you get it for Target, are they going to buy like video games? Or are we just going to make sure that they buy like clothes? And then a very sassy savior came into my head and was like, stay in your lane. Your job was to take the gifts that had been given by my people and to make sure that they got in the hands of those families and those children that desperately need clothes. That is your lane. And you have done that. Good job, good servant. Sit down. You don't need to micromanage this. And that's really hard because I'm getting ready to micromanage my own kid's first day of school outfit. 
And maybe God was like, you know what? That's going to be a real lot. You're going to want to focus on that. Because he's been telling me all summer he doesn't need new clothes. So if it's a cold day, the first day of school, my son's going to look like Nadal in capris. I'm not really sure what's going to happen there. Or maybe it'll be a really hot day and he'll be wearing shorts, but he'll look like Wilt Chamberlain from the Sixers in the 70s. I'm not really sure yet. We'll see. And so the, it means something, right, to be able to say, this is what God needs of me and I'm going to do it and I'm not going to do it with any strings attached. Because if you ever had somebody give you something and put strings on it, you like that? I'm giving you $100, but you have to put it in your savings. Well, what am I going to do with it there? You know, because you're a teenager and you're like, I don't want $100 in an account that my mom oversees, right? That's not what you want. You want $100 because you had things that you could buy, right? You don't want strings attached. God doesn't put strings on what God gives you. God has put no strings on anything that God has given you. And let me tell you, my siblings in Christ, a lot of time throughout history, Christians have tried to put strings and make Jesus a marionette on this cross. When Jesus came down from this cross, there were no strings attached. If you hear my voice, if you acknowledge me, I acknowledge you, you are my sheep and I will save you. And death will not snatch you from me. No one, nothing will snatch you from me. You are mine, no strings attached. And so we don't have strings. God doesn't put strings on it. God says, do you want to be forgiven? I forgive you. You want to be loved? I love you. But no strings attached. There is none of that. There is no God saying, you can be my people as long as you do this. You are now my people because I love you and I have redeemed you, says Jesus Christ. That's why you are my people. And so Jesus has told us three things that we need to do to stay in our lane. Three things. Took 613 commandments in the Old Testament and brought them down to two and added one more. Jesus says you will love God, you will love your neighbor, and you will love them as I have loved you. Those are the three things that we will do. Notice none of that is micromanage what kids wear on the first day of school. Notice none of that is try to determine whether people are worthy of being part of your family of faith. Notice none of that is about critiquing people and deciding that they can't be saved Christians because we don't like the way they talk or the way they act or the people they hang out with. Notice it was just love, love, love. We will love them because we have been loved. And I had an experience one time where I got to kind of watch this play out, right? This strings attached and the stay in your lane. Because if you've ever been to the downtown mall in Charlottesville, you know that there's a lot of open outdoor seating. And so I was sitting outside of a restaurant one day and my dining companion had gone in to use the restroom. And so I was out by myself. And then you engage in your favorite thing to do on the downtown mall, which is people watch. And so I was people watching from my table and a little further to the actual walkway where everybody's kind of passing by is another table with another couple. And the man was sitting there and one of the regulars on the downtown mall came up to him. Now, I have seen this person for many years and I suspect that this person is either transiently homeless or persistently homeless. And I've talked to this person. This person is usually asking for a little bit of money or whatever you have on hand. And so this person walked up to this table and said to them, do you have any money? The man reached into his pocket, pulled out his wallet, gave the man a $20 bill. And the man, you know, genuflected and walked off. And then she weighed in. Why did you give him that money? You know he's just going to buy alcohol or cigarettes or drugs. Why did you give him that money? 
and he was fluxumed and didn't know how to respond. And part of me wanted to jersey slide over there and tell her what I thought he had done, but I stayed in my lane. I stayed in my lane. Because I'll tell you, I still see that man that got the $20. I still see him. And maybe he bought alcohol, maybe he didn't. But I'll tell you what, he's still here. He's still alive. He's still a child of God. He's still a part of our community. And yeah, I'm sure that you have that moment where you think to yourself, I have something, do I give it? But Jesus said, if you have it, you give it. You have two coats, you give one. You are able to go one mile, you go two. You are able to help with what you have, your time, your talents, your gifts, your energy, your presence, you give it. Because that's what you have. You give what you have. God has control over death and eternity, and God has given it to us. Are we showing gratitude by giving of what we have? Are we trying to put strings on it? Are we trying to tell people how to drive in their lane? Because sometimes God is telling us a different route on how to get to the kingdom. We're not all on the same highway. If you've ever been on the Jersey Turnpike on Christmas morning, you will be thankful that we are not all on the same highway. But we are all going to get to the same promised land. We're all going to the same place. And there are probably tolls along the way. But I'll tell you what the highway that Christ has paved for us is. It is a highway where there is always a shoulder for safety. It is a highway where there is always a rest stop and God knows you need one when you are nowhere near one. It is a highway where the rest stops always have toilet paper and clean bathrooms. It is a highway where there is always a restaurant and a safe place and a beautiful outlook. It is a highway where we are told to stay in our lane. And that lane is bordered and paved with love. And when we start veering out of our lane or trying to micromanage other people's driving, Jesus gets a little snarky with us. So the next time you feel really desirous or intensely compelled to try to reach over and tell someone how to drive, or you feel that need to kind of veer into someone else's lane because you're not sure they're really good at driving on this path, or the next time that you feel that you need to put parameters on the graciousness and the blessing that you have to share, remember what Jesus said to them. I've done a lot of good things. A lot of good things. And you might not believe in everything that I've done. You might not even believe in me. But stay in your lane and leave me alone. Leave me alone. You really going to stone me because I've loved the unlovable? Are you really going to stone me because I've healed the broken? Are you really going to stone me because I fed people who were hungry, even on the Sabbath? Are you really going to stone me for that? No, we're not. We're going to do the three things that Jesus told us to do. We're going to love God, we're going to love our neighbor, and we're going to love as we have been loved. And that is the only way that we are going to live up to the necessity of being a good disciple. We're going to love. When in doubt, love. If you get in trouble with God because you love too much, I doubt that day will ever happen. I've never, I've had God say a lot of things to me. I've never had God be like, stop loving them. Stop it. Stop it. 
Never had that. I've had God say stop it on a lot of stuff. Not that. Never. And have you ever seen somebody who is selflessly loving another person? Doesn't it inspire you? Doesn't it make you feel warm and fuzzy inside? Don't you like, like, that's what Jesus was doing. That's it. We're going to love. We're going to stay in our lane and we're going to love. Amen? Amen? All right. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.